Okay, we'll go ahead and try to get started. There'll probably be a few more wandering in, but with it being the weekend before Thanksgiving, you may have people out of town too. Um, Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the privilege of knowing Christ as Savior, but getting to know him as our life. Lord, we thank you for the salvation you, he purchased for us. A salvation that provides for us to spend eternity with you, but Lord, a salvation that doesn't leave us on on our own till then. A salvation that provides us with everything necessary for life and godliness. A salvation that has made us complete in Christ and has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Lord, we thank you for the chapter we get to look at this week, that of purpose. And Lord, I thank you that in your word, you have spelled out for us the purpose you're trying to achieve through your work in each of our lives. And Lord, that we don't have to be blind to what you're trying to accomplish. And Lord, I just thank you that as we come to understand it, um, that it... uh, can bring a lot of meaning and understanding into uh, a lot of things we face in day-to-day life. Now, Lord, again, we thank you for your Holy Spirit and his ministry within, that teaching ministry. Lord, we pray that he would guide our time together this morning and open the eyes of our understanding to the truths that you would have us, uh, each of us, to learn. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in chapter 4 today. Of course, we've looked at three different chapters thus far in our our study. The first chapter, of course, was on faith, and it really lays a foundational principle uh, for the rest of the book. And that is the issue of faith. That the Christian life from beginning to end is based on faith. And we talked about what faith is. It's not what the world uh, wants to define it as. The world sees faith as just believing something real hard that there's no real evidence for. Uh, It's just kind of a strong wish. (laughs) Biblical faith is putting our confidence in the facts established by God. Things that God tells us. Now, they're facts that we may not be able to verify by any means other than the testimony of God. But they have behind them the most reliable witness there is, and that is God himself. And really, as we move forward through this book, you know, one point after another is going to require us to take God at his word. To believe what he has said. And to trust him. Now, you know, in chapter 2 we looked at the matter of time. That God is not in a hurry. That God is taking whatever time is necessary to accomplish his work. Now, time is probably the one chapter that... It's difficult to just come up with a verse, you know, that uh, supports this whole concept of time. 
but it is very supportable by looking at God's work through the pages of Scripture. Uh, you know, there are, there are plenty of concrete facts to rest upon. You look at the amount of time God took in the life of Abraham. You look at the amount of time that God took in the life of Jacob. You look at the fact that from the time David was anointed as king until he actually sat on the throne was something like 13 years. You know, you, you look at uh, even uh, the Apostle Paul and there were three years from when he was saved and you know God took him out into the desert for three years uh, and there was that time before he really began his public ministry even though he was a man who was incredibly versed in the scriptures who as a Pharisee knew the Old Testament scriptures inside and out and yet God nevertheless took time to prepare him. So, you know, the pages of Scripture are very clear that there is time involved in God's work. And that's important for us to know with regards to our own life, but it's also incredibly important to know uh, as we work with other people and as God involves us with others because we can become uh, impatient. Um, you know, the ministry Mike's in uh, requires an understanding of time. Uh, I know years ago, and I don't know where things are at now, but I know my dad used to say he expected to work uh, with the various clients off and on for three to five years. That it would take a minimum of three to five years to see them gain any sort of stability in their walk. And so when somebody walked through the door for the first time, Dad knew that he probably was going to be dealing with this individual for a minimum of three years off and on, maybe five, some of them 10 and 15. I know he used to, whenever they had a new client, they would... Um, assign them a number and then they would put a letter after it and then we had certain individuals we work with who had gone through the alphabet and had started in with double A and double B. You know, uh, that's how m many times my dad had worked with him. And there was this, you know, ongoing time factor. You know, when we went to Ireland and got blessed us with being able to work with some struggling believers. We knew it was going to be years. We weren't expecting things to turn around overnight. And we shouldn't expect it in our own lives either. So we saw the whole issue of time. Incredibly important. I guarantee you, you really need to come to grips with it. Because we're in such a rush. And I pointed out, when a baby's born into this world, you know, the parent knows there's going to be a good 20 years investment in seeing that child grow up. And somehow we think that the new creation is going to grow up in a year or two. And we don't realize the same kind of time investment in it. So chapter 2, we, we spent uh, time looking at time. Chapter 3, we spent looking at the issue of acceptance. 
And here we do have a verse to fall back on. It says that we have been accepted in the beloved. We need to come to realize that God accepts you and God accepts me. Now he doesn't necessarily accept the life we're living. But he accepts us. And he accepts us solely on the uh, the basis of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not on probation. And we don't have to worry today whether God accepts us. Now unfortunately a lot of Christians don't experience that peace because they've come to rest their concept of acceptance a lot of times on how they feel and how their life is going and if if life's going along good and and they feel close to the Lord they they believe he accepts them but then when trials come and and uh, their world seems to be falling apart they feel like God doesn't accept them and that's not true because his acceptance of us is based upon his, the, our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to come to accept by faith that fact. I'm thankful that the Lord has brought me to a place where I never wonder whether God accepts me. No matter how I feel, even on those days when I might step off into the flesh and blow it really big, I still do not fear that God does not accept me. Because I know He does. And it gives me a lot of confidence to move forward in my Christian life. Now today we want to deal with another very significant issue. The issue of purpose. What God's goal is in your life and mine. What God is trying to achieve in the work he's doing. Stanford starts out and says how wonderful and encouraging it is to know that our Heavenly Father has made it crystal clear in his word exactly what his purpose is for each one of us. So God has made clear in his word exactly what his purpose is. What his purpose is for you, what his purpose is for me. What it is that he is tirelessly working to achieve in you today and what he's tirelessly seeking to achieve in me today. And he says now is the time in in these next few moments to make sure on the authority of his eternal word as to his purpose for your personal life. He says, now's the time we really need to establish in our own hearts and minds based upon the word of God what his purpose is for you and what his purpose is for me. What he has as the goal That he is working toward in each of our lives. Now. In order to understand. What God is seeking to achieve in each of us. 
we really have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to what God was seeking to achieve when he created man. When he placed him there in the Garden of Eden. And for that we go back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. There God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. <clears throat> so when God created humanity, when he created mankind and put him on this planet, his goal, his purpose was to, for man to bear his image. And so, Adam, the original man, was created to bear the image of God. He says, the first Adam, the head of the human race, was made in God's image in the realm of personality, intellect, emotions, will, etc. So there could be communion, fellowship, and cooperation between them with God sovereign and man subject, subject to his will, which is perfect freedom. So, Adam was created to bear the image of God. But the question is, what does this mean? And what's clear as you move forward in Scripture is it's not speaking about physical appearance. You know, Christ came and he took on humanity and in taking on humanity, then he looked like a man. But God in Scripture is not seen as possessing a body like us. In fact, when you get into the book of Revelation and you see him on his throne, there's no description of him in a physical sense. It's all in, in, in colors and things that uh, are seen. So... You know, what does it mean that man was created in the image of God? If it's not in appearance. I'm going to depart from, for a few minutes from uh, our book here. A fellow by the name of Gordon Olson uh, wrote a pretty good book in which he has a chapter that looks, a lot, uh, looks into the issue of what it means to be created in the image of God. And he points out that as you go through the remainder of Scripture, that it's clear that a lot of what's involved in the image of God is God's moral image. You know, what his, uh, when you think of the attributes of God, you know, you think of the attributes of his being, but you also think of the attributes of his character. And mankind... Bearing the image of God was more in, uh, an issue of in the realm of God's very character. Now Olson points out that there are three primary explanations that have been set forth as to what it means to be the image of God. One is the relational view. And this view says that the image of God was an image that enabled mankind to relate to God and, and other human beings. That, you know, God created man in his image so that he could have a relationship with God. A relationship that the animals don't have. And even on a, on a 
individual basis with other humans, we could have a, a relational uh, level that goes beyond uh, what uh, takes place in any other uh, realm of creation. Secondly, there are those who hold to the functional view. And this view says that the image of God is seen in man's rule over the animal, vegetable, and mineral domains on the earth. In fact, in a sense, it's saying that man was created in the image of God in that he was given a level of sovereignty. A level of sovereignty over creation. You know, he was over, he was created to have authority over the animal realm. He was created to have, uh, realm in the uh, over the veg uh, the realm of vegetation he was created <clears throat> to have uh, authority really over all of the elements of this world and then thirdly there's the substantive view which says that the image of god is seen in the fact that man is substantially different from other creatures He's different from, you know, uh, the animal realm. Now, I realize the evolutionist doesn't want to recognize that. But the reality is that man was created uh, different in that realm. We may have been created from the same elements that the animal world was created from, from the dust of the earth. But we are substantially different than them. Now Olson goes on to point out that there is actually truth in all three. What man does relate to uh, God and other people and what man is able to do, exercise rule over nature, is dependent upon who he is in substance. That he is different than the rest of creation. So, what is this substantive reality of the image of God? First of all, man, unlike the rest of, uh, of um, living creatures, was created with an everlasting spirit. Our bodies may die, but there is a spirit element of us that will go on. That's not true of your pet dog Fido or your cat Tabby or, you know, whatever you have. They do not have that everlasting spirit. We're, we're different than the animal creation in that way. In Colossians, Paul indicates that... We have the capacity to gain true knowledge. You know, you know, animals have instinct and there are certain things they can learn to do. But they do not have the capacity for knowledge that mankind has. Ephesians 4.12 indicates that there is the capacity... For a level of righteousness and holiness. Now regarding this, Olson writes, It's widely understood that Adam was created in innocence. 
with the possibility of attaining righteousness and holiness in continued fellowship uh, with and obedience to God. He says when Adam was put there in the Garden of Eden, he was innocent, but had he chosen to obey God, there was capacity for him to live righteously, and there was the capacity for him to live a holy life. And so Olson goes on to write, seeing the many aspects of his image in man, the full spectrum of God's moral attributes should be included in our understanding. And, it, and Olson does a pretty good job of pointing out that as you go through scripture, you know, in a relative sense, you pretty much see all the different attributes of God's character seen. There's a relative righteousness, there's a relative justice, there's a relative wisdom. You know, um, there's a relative level of love. None of them are in an absolute sense because sin has muddied the picture. But man was created, as he was created and as he was placed in the garden, was put there... To be able to truly bear forth a, a picture of what, uh, what God's character is like. And then uh, along with that to be able to function in complete fellowship with God. So, you know, in a simpler term, the image of God involves the very moral characteristics of God. Now... Returning to our book, Miles Stanford speaks of the first man and he states that he was made in God's image in the realm of personality, intellect, emotions, will, etc. So that there could be this communion, this fellowship, this cooperation between God and man. But then Adam chose to disobey and when he chose to disobey God that image was marred and it is that marred image that was uh, passed down from one generation to the next you know uh, it says but Adam but, but we know Adam was beguiled he was deceived into choosing his own way in preference to God's way. Relying on himself, loving only himself. And so, what? Thus, he brought forth a sinful, ungodly, self-centered race, born dead in trespasses and sins. As a result of Adam's sin, each of us entered the world with this old Adamic nature. We each came into the world bearing the image of, of Adam. 
We each came into this world with a life that was self-driven, self-focused. A life that seeked to live independently from God. A life that was in bondage to sin in the flesh. A life that we, that's influenced by the world around it. And if it has any concern for God, it seeks to win God's acceptance by its own self-righteousness. That old Adamic life sees law, i.e. rules and regulations, as the guide to a righteous and holy life. And we, in that old Adamic life, believed that if we only had more strength, we could do it. We could be victorious. And any attempts to live the Christian life are at best for Him. Through our own strength, our own energy. And ultimately with the desire for our own glory. That we take credit for it. This is what we inherited from Adam. But in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. The writer of Hebrews tells us that God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. Who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And so here is the image of God back on earth, this time in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is referred to in scripture as the last Adam. We were born into this world bearing the image of the first Adam, but we're going to see as we move forward that God's goal is going to be for us to increasingly bear the image of the last Adam. Now, you know, if you think back on what we talked about with regards to bearing the image of God, and you look at the life of Christ Everything that was described as we looked at, you know, bearing the image of God is found in Christ. You know, Christ, when he came into this world, he had the uh, authority over nature that Adam was intended to have. You know, it's easy when you look at Christ in the Gospels and him calming the storm and, and causing the fig tree uh, to wither and all that. To think that he's having to use his divine attributes to do that. I'm not sure that's true. I think he's in a sense using his attributes as true man. Unfallen man. To do what Adam was created to be able to do. Adam was created to be able to speak to the fish. And fill a net full. Adam was created. You know. To be able to calm the storm. 
Adam was created to have authority over nature. He gave it up. And Christ came into the world as true man, unfallen man, unsinful man, and you see that in him. And you see him showing forth the full character of God in perfection. You see him in absolute communion with the Father. You see in Christ everything that man was intended to be. You see in Christ the true image of God. So much so that there in the upper room hours before his betrayal when uh, I think it's Philip says show us the father and Christ says have you been with me so long that you do not realize that if you've seen me you've seen the father I bear the father's image I bear the image that man was created to bear. And I'm doing it with accuracy. So the image of God is back on earth, this time in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, our natural birth made us members of the fallen, sinful, first Adam race. Our natural birth made us part of this fallen race over here. He says, our transition from the old sinful race to the new godly race is known as the new birth. So it's our new birth that takes us out of this, uh, our old position in Adam and brings us to a new position in Christ. When we were born again through repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, we were born into him. He became our life. Colossians 3, 3 and 4. Wert thou cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree? Romans eleven twenty four. Then Romans, um, I mean Romans five nineteen. For as by one man, that is Adam's disobedience, many became were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, that is Christ shall all be made righteous. And he says here, our heavenly father is still carrying out his purpose of making man in his image. You know, when Adam sinned there in the garden, God didn't throw up his hands and say, well, it was a good idea, didn't work. Forget that. You know, scratch that. Would have been great if man could have borne my image, but ain't going to happen. No, he didn't give up. He went back to work. 
And he didn't give up because he knew before he created man what was going to happen. He didn't catch him by surprise. In fact, it's part of the process. God didn't make Adam sin, but he's working through that in the process of carrying out his plan. And so, you know, he's still carrying out his purpose of making man in his image. The purpose has not changed. His purpose hasn't changed from Genesis chapter 1. It's the same today as it was back then. But he's not using the original man to bring it about. He's not working through Adam to bring about his image being present in mankind. He's now centered, it's not, all is now centered in the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he quotes here, as we have borne the image of the earthly Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly Christ. That comes from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just like when you and I were born into this world, we were born bearing the, the image of Adam. One day... We are going to bear the very image of Christ. That was God's goal in the garden. It's his goal today. Now he quotes from Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that all things work together for good to them who love God. To them who are called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now this is an oft, often quoted passage, which I think is often misunderstood and often misused. For one thing, you have it quoted at times to unbelievers when something bad comes into their life and, well, all things work together for good. Not necessarily for them. And even in the lives of believers at times, there's a misunderstanding of what's being said. It says what? That, all, that God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the working together toward, for good is in achieving his purpose. And what is that purpose? To conform us to the image of his dear son. Whatever God allows to come into your life or brings into your life. Is going to be used by him in the process of moving you from who you were in Adam. 
to who you are in Christ in an experiential way. He's going to use everything. Why? Because Paul tells us that we as believers have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's interesting here what we are predestined to. It doesn't say we were predestined to be justified. It says we are predestined to be conformed. I use as an illustration, you know, for a 35th anniversary, Jonell and I took a cruise. And when we got on that ship and the gangplank came up, we were predestined to end up where the ship was going. Now you can ruin any of these illustrations by, well, you could jump overboard or fall overboard or this or that. But the reality was, we were going where the ship was going. And our journey could be very different from other people on that ship. There was a lot of movement within that ship. We could have spent our whole time sitting in our cabin and thought, I don't know what everybody gets out of these cruises. It's really not that fancy a room and it's not that big and spacious and there aren't even any windows. And we're just sitting here. And it could have been a long, boring journey. Or you could go up on the deck and you could look around and you could see the beauties of Alaska. We were doing an Alaskan cruise. We could, uh, you know, uh, utilize the different uh, meals and buffets and all that that they had. But, you know, our journey may have been different than somebody else's journey. But you know what? Every one of us on that ship got to the same place. We got from point A to point B. And so it is in our Christian life. When we enter into Christ, it is assured that we will arrive at the destination God's taking us to, which is conformity to the image of of Christ. And we see that in 1 John chapter 3 verse 2, where Paul, uh, not Paul, John says... That right, when Christ returns, we what? We shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. John says, we're going to arrive at that destination. Now our journey, you know, as I look over all of you in this room, our journeys are very different. What each of you goes through and what I go through may be very different things. But no matter what, we will one day be conformed. And I don't think God is saying, well, all I care about is when Christ returns, they'll be like Christ. No, he wants us to become more and more Christ-like now. And whatever comes into our life is being used by him in the process of moving us in that direction. It really helps to understand this. Yeah. I was thinking too that 
healthy, wealthy, you know, that if God's goal is to make us successful business people or, you know, uh, successful in this area or that area, you know, if we start thinking those are our goal, his goals, that he wants us to be financially established or uh, this or that. Or that, you know, his number one desire is that we successfully serve him. Or that we have a great marriage or a great family or, or this or that. That's not his number one goal. His number one goal is to conform us to the image of Christ. And to use whatever it takes to bring us to that point. And we'll see, we won't get into it this week, but a lot of what his, his work of getting us there is first of all to cause us to give up on the old Adamic life. We won't get to this till next time, which is two weeks from now, because next week's prayer, but that the n- number one instrument, the number one tool God uses in this process is failure. Letting us fail in our own fleshly efforts. To bring us to that place of saying, God, I can't do it. And to let him do what we can't do. So he says, picking up where I left off, here is the good for which God is working all things together. His original purpose of making him, us in his image. Which is centered and expressed in his son. Christ who is our life. Paul's determination for each of his converts was my little children. Of whom I travail in birth again. Until Christ be formed in you. And let me just read this next couple sentences and we'll stop there and we'll pick up there next time. He says, the open secret of healthy spiritual growth is to know and settle down on this fact as set forth in Romans 8, 28, and 29. 
When we see that all things are working together to make us more and more like the Lord Jesus, we will not be frustrated and upset when some of these things are hard, difficult to understand, and often contain an element of death. We will be able to rest in our Lord Jesus and say to our Father, Thy will be done, and our constant attitude of faith will be, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. This is our matriculation to spiritual maturity. Again, we'll pick up there next time, and, I, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I kind of wanted to at least end on that note, and that gives us a good point to, uh, again, move into the next point, because next, you know, he's going to say it's one thing to know what God's purpose is, it's another thing to know uh, how, uh, the how uh, as to entering it into right now. So we know what God's wanting to achieve, how does he set about to achieve it? And that's what we're going to look at next time around. Okay, we're out of time. Let me have a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you just for the high purpose you have for us. Lord, to think of the fact that your goal for each of us in this room is that one day we will bear forth your image in our character. Lord, that we will show forth the very life of Christ. Lord, may we trust you as you take us through the trials of life, through the ups and downs of that journey, to trust you that you are working all these things together towards the good of conforming us to his image. Lord, we thank you for him. We thank you that he is our source of all things, and he is the one who has made it all possible. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.